so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Church culture was fairly easy for me to dispense with. I don't fit in, you're not my kind of people, and I would scare you. (laughs) And I know that. I know that. So it was easy in some ways to dismiss that. But what I could not dismiss was the risen Christ. Mm. I could not dismiss the fact that all of the things that I valued as a social activist, Jesus valued. I could not get over that. I couldn't shake it. In October of 2014, the ERLC hosted their inaugural national conference at the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. The conference was titled The Gospel, Homosexuality, and the Future of Marriage. Dr. Moore sat down with Rosaria Butterfield to discuss her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria shares her story and how she was brought out of a lesbian relationship and into the one community she never thought she'd be a part of, the church. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, hello, I'm Russell Moore, president of the ERLC, and I have with me today on the platform Rosaria Butterfield. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, (laughs) Uh, ever since someone sent me a little while ago, a couple years ago, I suppose, a copy of of a new book. They said, you really ought to read. Uh, by this woman, Rosaria Butterfield. And it was one of those books that yeah, I thought I'd kind of thumb through a little bit and maybe put it aside and read it later on. And I found myself reading straight through it uh, in, in all one night because it was such a captivating and powerful story. Mm-hmm. And so when we were talking about having this conference, the first name, and literally the first name that came to my mind, was Rosaria, and so we're very honored to have you here today. I want to tell everybody, for those of you who are not familiar with Rosaria's story, uh, she is an author and a speaker, she is a pastor's wife, she's a homeschooling mom, but before all of that, uh, there was a time when she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, uh, she was in a lesbian relationship at that time, uh, I think it's fair to say you were pretty hostile to folks oh, like yes. this, okay? Uh, <laughs> I think you may have written a book or two about, yeah. Uh, So so we'll we'll talk a little bit about how you got from there to here. Uh, But before we do that, what do evangelical Christians just not get about the LGBT community? One of the first things that I firmly believe you don't get is that in this very room and in all of your encounters, you will meet and know and love people whose original sin has left the thumbprint of unwanted homosexual desire. People are not different. Original sin is the great leveling playing field. It has democratized everything. And without meaning to, perhaps, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt, um, 
I've come a long way. <laughs> uh, without meaning to, let's say, uh, you are presuming that without even knowing the people with whom you're speaking, that may need to be fixed and fixed up in a specific way. So one of the first things that we could commit ourselves to doing is to being a community of believers who share the gift of repentance unto life in a way that other people can see. When I was in the gay community, somebody's home was open for fellowship or just for food or just to stand between you and that awful pit of loneliness every single night. Everybody knew there was a place to go. And from my experience, the church is living on a starvation diet of community. And I don't know why, but I can't live like that. And maybe the people you're witnessing to are put off by the message of the gospel of life because they don't want to live like this either. Well, now you... you have, of course, over the past uh, several years, uh, been working in the Christian community, uh, writing and speaking and doing uh, other things. What do you think the LGBT community does not understand about evangelical Christians? Well, I think it would be impossible for anyone apart from the bounded system of the Christian church to know anything about the means of grace. I think the means of grace are things that we have at our fingertips. It is part of the great spiritual inheritance of being a child of the living God. But those means of grace are, are privatized in our, um, maybe in our, in our fear of people or maybe our busyness. Maybe we're just too functional. So wouldn't it be amazing if, if just this week, all of your unsaved neighbors actually knew that church membership was a vital life-giving gift to you. Mm. I mean, you know, let's face it. They know if you have a snowblower. They know if you're, you know, you've got a kid who's going to rake some leaves. What if they actually knew something about the rhythm of life, of what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian today? You know, one of the very simple things that, that, that my husband Kent and I have, have done with the help of our neighbors is every... Thursday night at 7 o'clock, we meet at the green picnic table in front of our house, and we pray and we walk, and we invite everybody to join us. We put it up on the, on the email listserv, so, you know, 300 people could come if they wanted to, and um, it has turned into a lovely time of neighborhood evangelism, not in some kind of programmatic way but in a way that has genuinely allowed the Christians in my community to know the mercy needs of the unsaved and move into those. Because the gospel road into people's lives will be in mercy. And no one's going to argue with that. When you step into someone's life with a cup of the cold water that they need, no one is going to disagree with you. And there is great need, and people's lives are filled with gospel bridges. But sometimes we are just too functional to notice. You know, in our tradition, uh, Baptist tradition, we used to have a lot of testimonies. 
people standing up and, and talking about what the Lord had done in their lives. Um, I think we've lost something that we don't have as many of those uh, taking place. But at the same time, I have kind of mixed feelings about that because I've seen that go badly so many times. I remember in my home church, it, it sometimes would become a competition, mm-hmm. you know, about how bad life was before Christ. Right. And so the one guy right. would stand up and say, I was drunk every right. single night of the week. It was, right. And then the next guy would stand up, oh, yeah, you're drunk? That's nothing. I was on horse tranquilizers. <laughs> and it, you know. But the thing that was most frustrating uh, about this is that we kind of turn testimonies into essentially the same thing as as advertisements for products. Here, here's how I met Jesus. And now that I've met Jesus, it's just like the product you see advertised on television. Now everything's great. I'm, I'm, I've left all of that behind. I don't have anything, uh, anything. And that was so awful. I'm so glad to be free from all of that. The thing that's different in in your testimony in your book is that you talk about how difficult it was for you to leave the community that you were in. Right. And so there's, there's not this sense of, oh, this was all awful and hellish and I was miserable and it was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. It was hard for you to do that. Why? What was hard to yeah, leave? Yes, that was, well, I'm, I, I too have struggled with these testimonies that make it seem that, that the point of the Christian life is to be to be um, uh, to be just confident unto yourself that the point of the Christian life is to have all of your problems solved so that your strength is in you. That is uh, not only is that annoying, that's heretical, right? I, I, you know, I mean, first of all, if that's what you get, you know, there are any you know countless of self help programs who promise to do it without the blood. You know, that's distasteful. But uh, you know, beyond that, we know that our hope is in the risen Christ and that it is not in ourselves that we stand, right? But in a daily dependence upon Christ, we are shattered for our sins, not necessarily because they are terribly odious to us, at least not at first. The Christian life is a discipline. It's an art. It's a science. It is not a quick fix. It is something that you establish over the life of your time with the Lord on earth. And so, so I, I think that if a testimony doesn't give you that sense of brokenness and shatteredness, um, and a sense that it is not me who, um, who is self-sufficient, it is the Lord himself who stands in my place, then I think the, the world knows, well, there's just nothing in that. But, you know, again, I, I want to say that the, the, the common grace is a wonderful thing. And common grace is bestowed upon, uh, you know, everyone. And at least in my experience, my gay and lesbian community was a place filled with common grace. I was, I was in serially monogamous lesbian relationships for a decade in the 1990s during, in some ways, the heyday of AIDS. And I learned the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife and get lots of kudos for as a pastor's wife in my gay and lesbian community. Mm. Because when you are regularly burying people from an illness that you do not understand, you learn a central Christian gift, and that's called standing with the disempowered. Mm. You learn how to accompany people in suffering, and those are good and Christ-like things to learn and qualities to have. But 
when I started reading the Bible, I was reading it for a research project. You know, I was writing a book on the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. And, you know, my colleague was an anthropologist. He could go off to Promise Keepers, you know, meetings and interview people. But I'm an English professor by training. My job is to read this book that got all these people in trouble and figure out why. And, um, no, I'm serious. You think I'm kidding. I'm cleaned up right now. This <laughs> is... Um, you know, in addition to that, I'm an English professor by training. I'm a whole book specialist, so my job is to size up a book in terms of its integrity. I would never use the Norton Anthology. I would, you know, you'd have to read all of it. My job is to make sure that the parts make up the whole. So when I started reading the Bible, it was absolutely undoing to me to discover that that is what we have here. It was absolutely um hermeneutically shocking to me to discover that the Bible was a unified biblical revelation. I was undone at the reality that God deals differently with people when people deal differently with God. I was blown away by the democratization of original sin and the free gift of the gospel. And most of all, my total undoing was to realize that I had thought I was on the side of righteousness and goodness and kindness and compassion. And it was my total undoing to realize that not only was it Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time, but it was my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my savior, my king, and my friend. And so that was my encounter with the Lord. Uh, I don't know how else to say it, except for that the pastor that the Lord used in, in my conversion was my neighbor and my friend. We opened the word together because I was trying to critique it, and he was more than happy to help me keep reading it. Um, I was using him, and perhaps he was using me. But I never felt like a project. And part of why I never felt like a project was that Ken Smith always realized that the big sin in my life was unbelief. Everything else would get worked out in the wash. Amen. Amen. I want to return to that pastor because one of the things that struck me in, in reading uh, your book, or maybe it was in an interview you did, uh, you talked about going to his home and mm -hmm. to being there with, uh, with his family. And uh, I think you were vegan at the time, is that right? And didn't to believe in air conditioning, environmental concerns about air conditioning. So, well, I don't know why I have people are laughing. Zealous at that. beliefs yeah, against uh, air But here, here's what I think is remarkable about this pastor that I've not met, but that you pictured here for me. It seems to me, from the way that you put this, your time over there was not a sparring match over Romans oh, one never. every night. Uh, and also, it was not a debate over whether or not you ought to be eating meat or not, or whether or not you ought to be uh, using air conditioning or not. Uh, but you talk about the fact that the, the guy shut off the air conditioning for you, and he fed you uh, the sort of food that you uh, would eat and loved you. I mean, I think that's something that all of us need to understand what's going on in his life that would enable him to be so Christ-like right. in that way. Right. Well, for those of you who know Ken Smith, and, and I was just able to talk with him last week, uh, he's a, a wonderful, godly example of an ordinary Christian. That's what, that's what Ken is. When I first met Ken, 
I had written this article in the, uh, the Syracuse newspaper, and it was about the Promise Keepers. And I don't remember what terrible offense the Promise Keepers did. Maybe they used up my favorite parking space that day, but it was an outrage. And I wrote an editorial. And one of Ken's elders put the editorial on his desk and said, Ken, you need to shut up this woman. She is big trouble, okay? <laughs> she wrote the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse. You know, she is just big trouble. We need to shut her up. And Ken apparently looked up at this elder and said, oh, you know, maybe, maybe Floyd and I should invite her over for dinner. <laughs> and you can just imagine what this young, young elder was thinking, right? He's thinking, you are too old. Get out of the business. But one of the things that, that Ken was, um, and is very gifted at is realizing that my orientation was a soul orientation. And I needed to understand that. But the other thing that Ken was so good at is that he ne- realized that he also needed to listen. And he needed to know where I was coming from and what some of the uh, values that I had and what my, uh, you know, what my ethics were, what I cared about. He didn't presume that I was a blank slate. And so at that first dinner that we had in his house, and I'll tell you, the only reason I went is I thought this would be so good for my research. You know, I just cannot even tell you who, you know, wow. So, um, so that's why I went. I was a user. I was happy to be a user. And, um, but what I met there was someone who was as committed to community as I am, as committed to hospitality as I am. Someone for whom conversations about sexuality and politics didn't send him under the chair. Mm. I also met someone who did two very important things at that first meeting that made me feel a little bit like chopped liver, but that's okay. Number one, he actually did not share the gospel with me. And number two, he did not invite me to church. And because of those two omissions to the whole script, right, the script by which we come at each other, I really trusted that this was someone who was the real deal, whatever that meant. Mm. And, um, and he would be a good teacher. You know, good teachers. I wanted a good teacher because I knew I'm a, I'm a teacher myself and I knew that I needed some help reading this book. Uh, but good teachers are people who allow people to come at ideas and change their minds and work through things without shame. Good teachers are people who are, are, in the long haul with you for the parents in this room who have children going off to college. You know, you, you wonder why you lose your covenant children sometimes in college. Well, you know, it is a very intimate thing when you open a book of any kind with a person and spend 16 weeks studying it. I I think that, that our children would love for us to have that kind of attention with them as well. Mm. And so that really began a two-year conversation where I will tell you things didn't look so good. It's not like I dropped to my knees and said the sinner's prayer in a week's time. Mm -hmm. We had very hefty conversations, but always very loving. They always started with prayer. They always ended with prayer. And Ken's house was as crazy as my house. That door kept opening and all kinds of people walked through it. And, and, and what they would do when they would walk through is they put their Bible on the table And we'd start talking and nobody acted like this was something that needed to be in a museum. That it would, we would hurt this Bible if we threw hard questions at it. And his home 
became a vital place of thinking and learning. And it was organic and it was unsafe and it was testy and it was ultimately, it was ultimately life-giving. You know, one of the things I think about with him is then probably that you wouldn't have thought about at the time is, but I've, I've been thinking about a lot when I think about your story is that I'm sure there were probably people in his life or to the right of him, you know, in the Christian community mm -hmm. who were saying, you're, you're giving up the gospel, you're doing this. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by when we say something that ought to be as non-controversial Right. as we ought to love our gay and lesbian neighbor, mm -hmm. that there are immediately people who will hit back with uh, with all sorts of uh, vitriol. And you realize, you know what? He eats with tax collectors and sinners, mm -hmm. still works as a rhetorical device. Right. So uh, it, it takes a lot of courage uh, for him to for him to to be in a friendship with you. Uh, without saying to everybody, hey, this is, this is a three-week uh, program we're right, going through right. and she's going to be right. a Christian by the right, end right, of it. Right, right, You know, I, I think, too, that you need to understand that I am part of an extremely obscure, nobody cares about reformed denomination. So Ken Smith did not have, you know, important evangelicals whispering in his ear about what to do. And, and you know, we are just ordinary Christians, and so I, I, while I'm, I know that there are people who felt that Ken was sure taking a long time with me, uh, you know, it, this is sure taking a long time. I haven't gotten the sense that within the Reformed and Presbyterian community, he had anything but prayer support. Yeah, that's good. That that, that was my sense. Um, you know, also Ken is a, an older pastor; he's been doing this a while. Mm -hmm. um, my husband's a pastor. I see the criticism. I hear the criticism. I watch him withstand the criticism. He was pretty thick-skinned. Mm -hmm. And so I think because for Ken, union with Christ is the most important thing, my soul was a lot more important than whatever folks were saying. But, you know, one of the benefits of being, you know, a small, obscure church is in some ways Either the Holy Spirit shows up or he doesn't. I don't know what else to say. You can't manufacture this. Um, you can't manufacture all these homeschooling families praying for me, you know, when I was the vampire, right, <laughs> to your blood. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, for real. You can't manufacture that. But those things, those things happen very well under the radar. I don't know how well they happen with 6,000 people in a church. I really don't. But under the radar, small church, families who know each other, organic community already in place, no programs. I mean, even if Ken wanted to farm me out to some program, there wouldn't have been one to farm me out to. <laughs> so I, was, I benefit from that. And I, um, you know, as a pastor's wife in the same denomination, my husband is a small, have, we have a small church. I have found that the Lord meets us in those meager places to do great things in the lives of people. And the less fanfare we get about it, the better. You know, one of the things that just when I read it in your book, it, 
I probably, I don't go a day that I don't think about this. And, and I'm, I'm telling the truth here. It, it, probably not a day that I don't think about the story that you tell. You confess to having been a church stalker. <laughs> that and, was easy. I, uh, thought, I thought Russell was going to say something that would make me uncomfortable. No, uh, no. <laughs> I, think, I, think that, I think that your church stalking narrative you like is that? one that is absolutely essential for every one of us in ministry to understand and to know. Why don't you tell us all what right, we're talking all right. about? You know, I just have to keep coming out of all kinds of closets around here. These <laughs> Hadn't thought about coming out of the closet on this one. All right. Well, um, I started, as I was reading through this Bible, it was, um, you know, my hermeneutical bag of tricks just didn't have a real system for containment for it. I was a historical materialist by training. I'm a 19th century scholar. So uh, Freud, Marx, Darwin, and Hegel are the worldview thinkers that, that shape my, my approach to, to life. And I, um, I was really taken by, by a number of things. But the most, probably the biggest, was that Jesus entered into history, that he did not emerge from it. And um, that might seem really small to you. Like, ooh, that English professors are so detailed. <laughs> it gets worse. Um, but but that, that was that was phenomenal to me because that was a reality of 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 of, uh, of personhood. It was an anthropology of humanity that I had never heard before or thought of before. And um, and as I was reading through the Bible, and you know, one of the things that Ken would always share is repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. No shame in repentance. Um, and, and in my life, my life in Christ school and repentance, I have, I've come to know that there is no shame in repentance because it simply proves the obvious that God was right all along. You know, oh, that's a big one, right? Put that on a billboard. So, right. I mean, that, that has been my takeaway in, in, in Christ school of repentance. But, um, I was really intrigued to know who in the world would get up in the morning and go to church. You know, who were you people? Um, <laughs> And so I would uh, go and, and, you know, get my, my signature Starbucks coffee and my New York Times and, and park my little red truck with the bumper stickers that would scare you um, across the streets. You know, I was polite. You know, I kept my contagion to myself. It was across the street at the coal muffler. And I would watch these enormous families pour out of these 15-person passenger vans. I thought 15-person passenger vans were for handymen. I did not know that they were for homeschool families. I did not know that. I was as well-educated as you could be, I thought, in all of my you know, humility, and I just did not know that. So I would watch these enormous families just pour out of the van, and I would think, I'm really interested in what goes on in that building. But there is simply no way that I can walk across this street. This is just wacky. That's what I thought. So how long, how long did it take for you to kind of observe this and wonder, could I ever be one of these yeah, yeah, people? I, yeah, I still don't think I can. Anyway, um, I, <laughs> did I say that? <laughs> 15 passenger van isn't part of the package necessarily. So right, you're not okay. necessarily. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I was, I was intrigued. I was intrigued by this, but I was also intrigued even more so. I mean, church culture was fairly easy for me to dispense with. I don't fit in. 
you're not my kind of people and I would scare you. <laughs> and I know that, <laughs> I know that. So it was easy in some ways to dismiss that. But what I could not dismiss was the risen Christ. Mm. I could not dismiss that. I could not dismiss the fact that all of the things that I valued as a, a, as, as a social activist, Jesus valued. He solved it very differently than I did. Let me just say that. But, but we started with the same question. I could not get over that. I couldn't shake it. And, um, and so it really was not, um, the people at the church that made me want to cross the street. Well, I'll tell you what, in, in one way it was, I discovered that I had some colleagues who went to this church and I was really intrigued. Some of them would, would, you know, kind of hang with me. We were on the same, some same committees. Um, you know, when you're at, you know, anyway, colleges are small, even big ones. So, um, I was intrigued at the way that they would talk about the sermon throughout the week. And one of the reasons that that really intrigued me was that they were showing to me in the way they were um, interpolating the Bible with their life, that they were actually living within God's story and within God's ontology. And I thought that was the most dangerous thing I had ever heard of. And it certainly would be for me. I mean, it certainly would be for me. Um, and not just about sexuality. Oh, if this were just about sexuality, this would not be a very long conversation. Mm. Much bigger issues at stake here. So, um, it, I just, I just, I don't really know what it was, but I, I, you know, I got up one morning and, um, I left the bed I share with, shared with my lesbian partner. And an hour later, I, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church mm. and, um, walking, you know, actually parking my van at the church with all the, you know, my, my van did not have bumper stickers that said abortion stops a beating heart. Mm. All right. That it, I had bumper stickers, but I didn't have your bumper stickers. You know, I just felt strongly that I needed to go there to meet God and not to fit in. Mm. And so. You know what I think, why I think that's so important, that story is because I think sometimes we assume we have the sheep, the goats, the goats are over here, the sheep are over here. And then we interact with, with people who are on the outside and that is an argument, it's a debate, and at the end of it, it is what must I do to be saved, or it is walking away. But there's an entire group of people who are sort of watching and wondering, I think, in the, in the way that, that you were, could I, what would it look like for me if I were right. actually in that community? Right. I think sometimes we right. miss that. Right, and, and that's where I think it's just important to, to know what you believe and to believe what you believe. I, I'm a Reformed Christian, and my experience and my reading of the Bible tells me that before the foundations of the world, a people has been set apart by a holy God. And those people are in all nations and communities, including, this is so obvious, but I will say it, including the LGBT community. That there are people whom God has set apart from before the foundations of the world to hear the gospel message and to be folded in to the family of God. And we are not only arrogant, but we are theologically vapid when we believe that we know who those people are. I can't tell the difference. Praise God for that. We cannot tell the difference between a wolf in sheep's clothing and a lost sheep unless you are close enough 
to have a real conversation. And what is very hard about that is that in order to be close enough to put the hand of the hurting into the hand of the Savior, you have to be close enough to get hurt yourself. Mm. That's so true. That's so true. Now, when you came to Christ, were you in a relationship at the time? Um, you know, I, yeah, I guess I, well, no, we had broken up. We, I, I, I became no fun. Oh. I became no fun. <laughs> I mean, I became no fun for everybody. And right now I'm writing a book. I'm no fun for everybody. When I'm working on a book, it's just universal. I'm no fun. I agree. All you get to hear about is my book. So I was working on this book on the religious right and I was reading the Bible. And after a while, I was just reading the Bible. Uh, you know, and I will just tell you, I was on a research leave. I was reading the Bible about five hours a day. You know, the the Holy Spirit has a lot of opportunity <laughs> to shake up your world when you are spending that much time with him. So my, my community had been hearing about the Bible. Um, many people in my community had met Ken Smith. Ken had, my, my night was Thursday night when my house was open. Ken had come over a few times to talk with some folks. Um, you know, this was just an open conversation, and I became no fun. And so... Um, my relationship did, um, uh, it was, it was weak. It was fragile. It wasn't, it just, it was falling apart. God was, was doing that. Um, when I came to faith mm. and, um, you know, but still you come to faith and, uh, you, you repent of your sin. Um, and, and maybe we should talk about what kind of sin I was repenting of because that, that sometimes is hard to understand, but you start, you know, you're a baby Christian. You start where you start. And you swing, you know, the alarm rings, you swing your feet out of bed, land on the floor, and you have a lot of sin still to clean up. It's not like God just, it, it's not a fairy tale, right? In fact, the, the afflictions of the righteous are many. Um, and, um, and one of the things that happened when, when I came to faith was Ken and Floyd came to me and said, okay, now that you are a new baby Christian and you are on the front line of a culture war. I seem to like that. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't know why. But um, you need to be a member of the church. And I thought, whoa, forget this. I like this me and Jesus stuff. Those people with that 15-person passenger, man, I've got to be with no way. I don't want this. But they said to me, look, you're a soldier. No, I'm a pacifist. Doesn't matter. <laughs> You're still a soldier. And Jesus doesn't send you out all by yourself. Because you'll get killed. I said, Ken, if I join your church, am I going to have all the elders in the back of my 300-person Women's Studies 101 class holding up placards, you know, excommunicated? Uh, <laughs> and he said, we'll work with you right where you are. <laughs> Because I was right in the middle of things, right? I, I, I wasn't, I was in the middle of teaching. I was in the middle of teaching classes in feminist theory and queer theory and women's studies 101. I was not at the end of something. I couldn't, I didn't have time to clean up my professional life. Mm -hmm. And Ken said, the church needs to help you right now in the situation you're in. So would you please study what I'm telling you about study church membership. Mm. And so it was a constant discipling and, and a patience. Oh, and a patience and, and a, and a total reality that it was going to be messy. 
and difficult. And you know what? Maybe embarrassing. Maybe embarrassing. Maybe our new believers will say things that are off. Yeah. And we will be embarrassed. But if it's for the good of the gospel, we've, we've spent much too much time trying to be all cleaned up as Christians. And you know what? I don't know if you've noticed, but it hasn't worked. <laughs> so let's try broken. Talking about this last night because someone was talking about broken. And uh, I, I used that, that language one time talking about our brokenness and we're all mm-hmm. broken people. And a secular person who had nothing to do with the church at all said this deeply offensive to me that you would use that language of broken. And I realized for the first time that what she heard when I said broken is done to be yes, disposed of. Right. And so every time now we understand right. that brokenness is a, is a good thing in right. the sense that this is right. vulnerability, how God, how God uses, but, but people don't get that and they don't understand that. I wonder how many people who are in maybe the situation you were in, but maybe they don't have the sort of resources to kind of spend time looking through it who wonder Am I really too far gone right. to even have this conversation right. about the gospel? I mean, what, what would you say to somebody in that, right. in that situation? Right. Well, I mean, if anyone's too far gone, everyone in this room is too far gone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing about being a living epistle is when you say, I'm broken, you give people the opportunity to look into the window of your life to see the way the Lord puts together those pieces. Mm. Um, and resources, well, I'll tell you what resources are. You are resources, You have neighbors. You have unsaved neighbors. And those unsaved neighbors God gave you by design. So uh, I should not have have any more resources than any of your neighbors. There's no reason on this planet that anyone would lack the resource of a godly neighbor. And so we... we, um, we need to know that because, indeed, the Lord intends ordinary means of grace to be the means by which people are saved. And those ordinary means include you in your limitations. You. In your book, you wrote something I think is powerful. You said, in understanding myself as a sexual being, Responding to Jesus meant not going backwards to my heterosexual past, but going forward to something entirely new. What do you mean by that? Right, right, absolutely. Well, you know, I the gospel's understanding of sexuality is the best kept secret on the planet. Sadly, even among Christians. So when when we as Christians call one another to sexual holiness. We are not saying that the answer is heterosexual marriage. We acknowledge that marriage is by God's design, but we acknowledge that not everyone is designed for marriage. We know that. Now, when we talk about chastity or about um, dealing in the Lord with your sexual temptations, we're not talking about repression. We're not talking about slapping our hands or the hands of somebody else. We're talking about acknowledging and loving the image of God in someone else deeply enough to be sacrificial with what you want. And that 
was really new information. And, and one of the things that I had to think about then that I have to think about today, and it's something that I pray about daily. Lord, how has original sin distorted me? And how is indwelling sin manipulating me? I'm no different now than then. You're no different than I am. These are our questions. And if we could share those instead of pretending that we're all cleaned up, we might have a powerful witness for what the gospel can do in a sexually broken world. So the end of your story, the end of your story is not that you're a pastor's wife. And you're not saying to that person who is looking and saying, oh, oh, this is what will happen. You will become a Christian and then you will be. Uh, so th that's, how, that's how your story played out. No. But there are all sorts well, of other and stories. And I'll tell you, I have very good friends, very good single friends, very good friends who struggle on all with all levels of sin, as we all do, who hang out with me. And probably my life would be the last. You know, like, watch the way I live and you might not necessarily see it as the, the poster child. But no, we have to be very careful to stop interfering with God's call for people's lives and to stop viewing single people as people who need to be fixed or to be fixed up. Amen. And we need to be very quick to repent of all the gay jokes we've told and Amen. all the, all the hardness of heart that we have established. And the sooner we do that, the better, because what makes us safe one to another is repentance unto life. What does not make us safe is that we all share the same sin pattern. Sometimes people who share the same sin pattern share it almost like you, you're doing, um, you know, kind of joint custody of a child of divorce. Mm. You know, the child of the divorce of your relationship with God. That's what it really is. So safety, being safe one to another, is being repentful unto life. And I truly believe that people who are struggling daily with unwanted homosexual desire would find your community and your conversation safe if, if we could see you also doing this, if you could see me doing this, that we acknowledge that daily we need the Lord. It is not unto us, but it is only in the risen Christ, and that is a daily need. You see why I wanted her here? <laughs> Thank you, Rosaria Butterfield. Thank you for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date on upcoming episodes. And remember, you can find more resources on marriage and singleness at ERLC.com.